You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. I'm delighted to introduce our speaker to you today. He has ministered to us on our campus and through his books, his writings, his radio uh, ministry from time to time in all of our lives, I'm sure. But Dr. Larry Crabb is the founder of New Way Ministries. The best, he's a best-selling author and psychologist. He's known internationally through those books and also as a seminar and conference speaker. He currently serves as Distinguished Scholar-in-Residence at Colorado Christian University and has served on the faculties of Regent College, Grace Theological Seminary, Florida Atlantic University, and the University of Illinois. His ministry includes Bible teaching and personal discipleship. He's married to Rachel. They have two grown sons, both who are married, and they have two grandchildren. Larry, it's a privilege to uh, welcome you back to the campus of Dallas Seminary. Would you join me in welcoming Dr. Larry Crabb? One correction, four grandchildren. Yeah. It's been uh, wonderful to walk into this room again today to be greeted by a number of you who have made me feel very old <laughs> by saying, I heard you back in 1975. <laughs> I'm actually in a sober mood this morning, sobered by a question that a pastor asked me yesterday at a pastor's luncheon. He asked a question that I only had a minute to respond to, and it occurred to me just last evening that his question is one that every pastor, every Christian leader asks many times in the course of his or her ministry. And the question is this, that he asked me yesterday, how do I keep going when beneath my ministry game face I feel empty and alone and deeply discouraged? I had a minute to answer that. And I didn't do very well, of course, and I may not do any better this morning, but I thought last night I'd like to respond to that question for a few minutes this morning. As I travel about, I hear so many tragic stories, and it just breaks my heart. And I don't want you to hear a tragic story about me, and yet I'm as capable of anybody, as anybody else of falling in some very bad directions and moving away from the ministry and giving up and discouragement. So I thought I'd share this morning, this was a decision I made last night actually, shifting gears a bit from plans, thought I'd share this morning a little bit about what I do when I get up in the middle of the night, as frequently happens, and wonder how to persevere when I feel so empty. When the tensions and disappointments of relationships seem just too much to bear, I was sharing with a new friend in the car this morning, that I thought when I began the ministry as a counselor in the Christian world that my opposition would come from the Hugh Hefners of the world. They've not given me any trouble. But the infighting within the Christian community is what I've participated in unwisely so often and been the recipient of, and it gets heavy. 
And when I face the challenges of walking what Jesus told me to walk, a narrow road that not many find, when I face some of those challenges and feel that the challenges maybe are more than I can handle, it often happens that I sit quietly in my living room at two in the morning and ask myself one particular question. Not only what have I learned, but more precisely, what have I become convinced of that remains an anchor in the middle of the storms? Thinking of Paul's admonition in Timothy. What have you learned? Continue in what you've learned and have been persuaded of. What have I been deeply persuaded of that keeps me maybe a little hopefully stable in the middle of the storms that all of us face? Well, in the last few years, since I've entered my 60s, I find myself longing more than ever to finish well and more aware than ever of the temptation to take John Bunyan's broader, easier road into Bypath Meadow. Do you recall the story in Pilgrim's Progress? And I ask, when I feel these temptations to get off this narrow, rough, difficult road and to go off into something that's a little bit easier and see other people who aren't accepting the challenges and moving and having a a more fun time, and I feel very tempted, I I ask myself, what do I deeply believe? What after all these years, raised in a Christian home, saved at age eight, what do I believe after 54 years of knowing Jesus that might have the hope of keeping me faithful so I finish well? And I reflect, and this is what I decided to talk to you about this morning, I reflect on what, what I have come to call the seven questions of spiritual theology. Seven questions that God has written the Bible, I believe, to answer, much else, of course, as well. Seven questions that each one of us would answer incorrectly if we didn't open our Bibles. And let me just review for you some very basic thinking that anchors me in the middle of the night, thinking that perhaps is more sophisticated when I'm sitting in my study, but maybe is more passionate when I'm sitting in my living room at two in the morning. Seven questions that undergird all of our thinking about the Christian life. The first one, who is God? Theology proper. C.S. Lewis writes about what he regards as, quote, perhaps the most important difference between Christianity and all other religions. In Christianity, Lewis writes, God is not a static thing, but a kind of dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, Lewis says, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. The union between the Father and Son is such a live, concrete thing that their union itself is also a person. I think about that sometimes at two in the morning. I think about the fact that Jonathan Edwards described the substance of deity, which equally adheres to all three persons of the Trinity as a disposition, a flowing, moving energy of radical, holy love, what Edwards called God's self-communicating disposition. He longs to reveal himself for the sheer pleasure of bringing his pleasure to others. So at 2 a.m., as of last week, this is true as well, at 2 a.m. I remind myself And forgive this if this sounds irreverent or unsophisticated. But when I think about who is God, I remind myself early morning that God is a party to which I'm invited. And I don't want to stand like a junior high school kid at the first junior high dance next to the wall carrying my little plastic cup full of red punch I don't even like. 
terrified to get out on the dance floor. John Owen's classic communion with God introduced me to the incredible hope of relating with and uniquely enjoying each member of the Trinity. And I want to join John Owens as he follows the Spirit's rhythm into communion with the Father and Son. Who is God? He's a, the only small group that's ever gotten along well. <laughs> and he invites me to join their group. The second question, what is he up to? If the first question is who is God, basic proper theology proper, the second question, what's God up to? At two in the morning, I think of this as my practical eschatology. I remind myself that living for his own glory makes God relentlessly determined to make me like his son. That's what he's up to. At whatever cost to himself is required by his holy nature, and at whatever cost to me is needed because of my unholy nature. Again, in Lewis's words, as I pull out my copy of Mere Christianity and ask what's God up to, Lewis says, when God said, be perfect, he meant it. He meant that we must go in for the full treatment. It is hard. It may be hard, and Lewis's inimitable style follow this metaphor, it may be hard for an egg to turn into a bird. It would be a jolly sight harder for it to learn to fly while remaining an egg. We are like eggs at present, and you cannot go on indefinitely being just an ordinary decent egg. We must be hatched or go bad. In another place, Lewis said that the purpose of the church is to make little Christs. In fact, Lewis added, it is doubtful the entire universe was created for any other purpose. Now, when I think of that, what's God up to? At 2 a.m., I find my heart, sometimes, I wish it were every time, crying out, Lord, free me from my bondage to self. Let me fly like an eagle. Are you up to that in my life? Whatever's going on? The third question, well, who am I? Basic anthropology. In his systematic theology, Lewis Berry Chafer wrote that we have no more important revelation in Scripture about people than that we bear the image of God. And whatever else that means when I'm in my study, at two in the morning, at the very least it means this, that I have the capacity to want God more than I want any other conceivable good, to want to know Him and enjoy Him on His terms, whether my spouse divorces me, whether my cancer of 10 years ago returns, or whether I endure long seasons of dryness and frustration. At 2 a.m., I often remind myself, I bear his image. The fourth question, what's gone wrong? Because something's gone wrong. You may recall the famous story the London Times during Chesterton's day invited philosophers and religious leaders to answer the question, what's wrong with the world? And all these learned essays came in, but the one that caught the most attention was from G.K. Chesterton, who wrote and said, dear sirs, I am yours truly. <laughs> What's gone wrong? Call this your essential homardiology. And in Augustine's famous phrase, every human soul, mine of course included, has, and here's the phrase, curved in on itself. My capacity to even want God has been corrupted and perverted into an enmity against him. An active, an active hostility, a, a hatred toward God, what J.I. Packer calls an anti-God virus. 
that in my view, after counseling with hundreds, maybe thousands of people over the past 40 years, this anti-God virus, in my view, is behind everything we wrongly call a psychological disorder and wrongly assume we can treat with therapy. All we're doing, I suggest, in many cases, is curving ourselves in a more adaptive manner temporarily, what I call socializing the flesh. The core reality behind all addictive disorders, in my understanding, buried beneath terrible pain and consuming terror, really is self-centeredness, idolatry of the self, sinful narcissism, a fist in God's face that demands better treatment. We're in a dreadful state, apart from the gospel. A dreadful state that we cannot fix, apart from the gospel. And at 2 a.m., when I ask myself, what's gone wrong? It's not the people that are disappointing me. It's not the frustrations I feel in my ministry. It's not the emptiness that I wish would go away and be replaced with an exuberant fullness 24-7. What's deeply wrong is the flesh is still with me, and I have no power to defeat it on my own. I ask the fifth question at 2 a.m. in the morning. The fifth question in my mind of spiritual theology is, what has God done about our problem? Call this gracious soteriology. Very familiar ground for all of us, of course. Am I that bad? (laughs) With four grandchildren, I love the noise. I have no problem with it at all. The Father sent the Son by the Spirit to be a new kind of human being. What God originally had in mind, a created person who would never for a moment under any circumstances live to preserve or protect his own sense of well-being. But he sent the eternal Son to become a human being, to live out his dream of a new humanity. A man, a human being who would fully entrust himself to God, even while soldiers were putting nails in his hands. Jesus felt God's pleasure for being the perfect man, but endured God's wrath for the fact that I turned away from God, something Jesus, of course, never did. He died and rose so I could be forgiven for being so insanely foolish as to think for a moment that there's a greater good to be enjoyed by turning away from God, whether it's to pornography whether it's to quarreling with my wife, whether it's to retreating from ministry so I can lead an easier life. I want to think about what God has done about the severe problem from which I suffer, for which there is no solution but the cross. Sometimes at two in the, mo- in the morning I worship and I wonder as I hum to myself amazing grace. Question six. What's the Spirit doing today? What's he up to right now? What's he up to right now at 11 o'clock on Tuesday morning at Dallas Theological Seminary? What's he up to in your life? Is he moving? Is he operating? Is he inviting you to a dance that you're afraid to join? What's the Spirit doing today? I think of it as dynamic pneumatology through providential blessings and sufferings that I can neither predict nor control. I couldn't control that my mother began a seven-year decline into Alzheimer's about nine years ago and then died two years ago watching my father say the long goodbye and hurting as badly as I've ever seen him hurt. I can't control that. I can't predict or control that my brother would be the last one on an airplane flying standby that crashed and he was killed 14 years ago. 
I can't control that after four years of undiagnosed illness, I was rushed to the hospital 10 years ago and diagnosed with cancer. I can't control providential blessings, of which I have many, and providential trials, of which we all share. Can't control or predict them. But I can believe, because I do, that what the Spirit is doing today is, as I understand it, detaching me. Now listen to the sentence, see if it makes sense to you. God's Spirit is detaching me from dependence on every source of joy. Dependence on every source of joy other than being included in the divine father-son relationship. For what do I depend on my joy? That my ministry goes well? That my next book sells? That my counseling goes well and people say, did a great job, Larry, thanks so much? Well, of course I get joy from that, and I should. But if I'm depending on that, I'm an idolater. And the Spirit is detaching me through all the manifold blessings that I have and the sufferings that I wish I didn't have, but I'm learning to welcome, taking James' inspired advice, believing that the Spirit of God is detaching me from dependence on every source of joy other than being included in the divine Father-Son relationship of learning what it means to love the Father the way the Son loves the Father and of learning to revel in the Father's love the way the Son reveled in His Father's love. The Spirit, I believe, and this sometimes comes home to me more deeply at two in the morning when I'm feeling alone and desperate and empty. The Spirit is detaching me from all my idols, such as enjoying ministry success more than communion with God. And the Spirit then is leading me, I believe, and sometimes not with joy but with hope. He's leading me into the Ecclesiastes experience a feeling utterly pointless in everything I do, a feeling essentially, why bother? Why bother pick up my pen to write the next book or open my Bible to prepare the next sermon? Why bother? You ever been to Ecclesiastes? And the Spirit leads me through Ecclesiastes, sometimes into the Job experience of unexplained and unexplainable suffering, the soul's dark night. And sometimes at two in the morning it dawns on me with, with clarity that he's taking me into the spiritual misery and he's doing that for one purpose out of his love. He's emptying space in my heart that I filled with myself so that he can fill that space with the literal life of Jesus which is consumed with passion for the Father. As St. John of the Cross said, God cannot walk by an empty soul without filling it. So the Spirit empties our souls to provide the Father with the pleasure of filling us with Jesus. And sometimes at 2 a.m. I welcome the trials of life. I realize they're my friends. And then question seven, the last of the seven questions. How do we cooperate with the Spirit in community? How do we cooperate with the Spirit as He is doing His thing? As He is emptying me of everything but Himself so the Father can fill me with Jesus so I could actually be formed to become like Jesus and fulfill the purpose of the gospel to bring pleasure and glory to the Father by becoming like the Son. How do we cooperate with the Spirit? Call this vital ecclesiology. Here's my way of putting it. This will take a moment of explanation. How do we cooperate with the Spirit? We cease being chess players with life. Instead, we become poets. 
we realize the absurdity and the wickedness of strategizing our every personal, relational, and ministry move to make our lives work better. I was sharing with several congregations on Sunday that I was the ultimate chess player as a father. When our two sons were born, I was determined to do it right so they would turn out right. And I worked at it. By the time my kids were five, they could each define propitiation. (laughs) We had Old Testament survey, New Testament survey for family devotions. I purchased an overhead projector for family devotions. (laughs) Wonder why I did that. Just playing. I'll do this and I'll pray with my fist clenched in demanding expectation of what God should do. Because I've done this, you owe me that. I've moved the chess pieces properly. I should be able to win the game. Cooperate with my chess playing, God. We cease being chess players in life and instead become poets. We surrender to the truth that nothing works as it should in this world. If you haven't learned that yet, you're still very young. We abandon ourselves to the reality we live in a disordered, disconnected, fallen world where nothing works exactly as it should, and we abandon ourselves to God as He advances His kingdom through our weaknesses. We begin to yearn to be able to discern the Spirit's purpose and rhythm in the middle of every argument with our spouse. Every moment of discouragement or anger, we listen to the Spirit. What are you saying to me? How can I advance your kingdom when I feel empty? How can I advance your kingdom when I'm discouraged? How can I advance your kingdom when my ministry is failing? How can I advance your kingdom when friends betray me? As opposed to, how can I play chess to make it better for me? We learn to follow the promptings of the Spirit according to biblical wisdom. And maybe we begin to realize that G.K. Chesterton was on to something when he wrote these words, quote, Poets do not go mad, but chess players do. Poetry is sane because it floats easily in an infinite sea. Chess players seek to cross the infinite sea and so make it finite. To accept everything is an exercise. To understand everything, a strain. The poet, Chesterton continues, the poet only desires a world to stretch himself in, our Father who art in heaven. The poet only asks to get his head into the heavens. It is the logician, the chess player, who seeks to get the heavens into his head. And it is his head that splits. Sometimes at 2 a.m., I repent in brokenness over playing so much chess. I repent in brokenness over my chess-playing nature that insists that I be in control of what happens in my life, that I find some way to maneuver and manipulate deity to achieve the good that I define as my good for now. I want life to work to my immediate advantage, and so I play chess to make it happen. And I realize I'm still curved in on myself as I play chess with my soul, my marriage, my ministry. And sometimes at 2 a.m. in the morning, I put down my plastic cup with the red punch that I really don't like. 
and I step away from the wall, and I move on to the dance floor. And, and from there, I can invite others, my wife, my kids, my friends. When I step onto the dance floor to enjoy God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to advance His purposes and to give up chess playing to figure out how He works so I can use Him for my purposes, then I can invite somebody else to come dance with me as together we enjoy the celestial party, flowing with the Spirit's rhythm through the empty seasons of Ecclesiastes, flowing with the Spirit's rhythm through the dark nights of Job as together we wait in anguish, groaning in a disordered world where nothing works as it should, where God sometimes seems absent. But we wait together like children in the wardrobe, hoping the back end will open up and we'll walk in the Narnia. And we wait for those moments of, of communion with God, wanting so much for the Spirit to reveal the glory of God in the face of Christ anticipating and enjoying those few Song of Solomon foretastes that he graciously provides as together we wait for the banquet. That's what I think about too in the morning sometimes. Gets me through. Stabilizes me. G.K. Chesterton again. I've been reading his works recently again. Chesterton, I'm told correctly, saw Sherlock Holmes as the ultimate chess player in writing the wrongs of the world, and so he created an anti-type. He created a poet, not a chess player, as a sleuth. And some of you have read the Father Brown novels, the fictional amateur sleuth named Father Brown, a bumbling, awkward priest who always got his man more through intuition than deduction, not like Holmes. And at one point in the Father Brown novels, when the chief of Scotland Yard was dumbfounded by Father Brown's successful capture of Flambeau, the arch-criminal of Europe that the chief of Scotland Yard had failed to bring in for many, many years, and Father Brown was on the case and brought him in, and the chief of Scotland Yard said, how do you do it? And Father Brown replied, I attach a long thread to a hook that I place in my quarry's heart. No matter how far he roams, I hold the thread in my hand. At the right time, I bring him home with a twitch upon the thread. Let me close with this. Chess players never feel the twitch. Chess players don't feel the twitch of the Spirit. They quench and grieve the Spirit by maneuvering through life for their own kingdom purposes. And we as believers, particularly in ministry, are very capable of doing that. Chess players don't feel the twitch. They don't sense the Spirit's prompting, and as a result, they don't dance very often. But poets hear the music of heaven in the song of God's answers to the essential questions of life, these seven questions that, to me, have come to be a foundation for everything I do. Who is God? What's he up to? And who am I? And what's gone wrong? And what's he done? And what's he doing now? And how can I cooperate? That, to me, is spiritual theology. And the more I give up my chess-playing tendencies and repent of that, realizing the pride involved, and the more I listen to the song of God's answers to those questions, sometimes I feel the twitch as the Spirit draws me home from my wandering at two in the morning. That twitch leads along a narrow road, Jesus said it would. If you want to follow me, if I were to say to you, how many people in this room want to follow Jesus, I'm sure every hand would go up instantly. 
then Jesus would continue and say, well, if you want to follow me, let me tell you, not only is it a narrow gate, but it's a rough road. And the twitch, as we listen to the Spirit through his word, leads us along a narrow road through Ecclesiastes and Job, but it leads to the party. My prayer is that just because of our few minutes together, some of us might be a little more encouraged to be among the few that find that road. Because at 2 a.m., it's thoughts like that that keep me going. I long to finish well. I long for you to finish well. Father, to be able to call you Father when I've been such a rebellious child, and to know I come home when that spirit twitches the thread in my heart and I feel your promptings to rejoin my opportunity for fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you for that. Deliver each of us from our chess-playing demand for control. Unclench our fists so we can raise our hands in worship and be poets who get our heads in the heavens and live out the eternal story of the Father and the Son and the Spirit as they invite us into their party. Thank you for that invitation. May we regard it as our supreme treasure, our absolute good. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.